Welcome back to Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. In today's beautiful episode, I've got to have one of the smartest human beings in the realm of neuroscience that I have uh, gotten to sit down with. A uh, big fan of the work from Dr. Andrew Hill. Uh, he holds a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA's Department of Psychology. And he is a badass in all things neurofeedback and cognitive function and concussions and making that space in between our ears function more smoothly. That is Andrew's domain. So that's what we get into in this conversation. Almost didn't release this conversation because I was slightly um, insecure about the audio quality. After recording this, we got like this whole new setup and the audio got so much better. Um, so I was, uh, but then I re-listened to it. This is this conversation from like a year and a half ago. Um, so it's a little, it's a little interesting to, to listen back to, but he just dropped so much amazing information that, um, it would be a disservice to you guys and him to not release it. So pardon the audio. I mean, it's still fine. It's good, but it's just not uh, as good as the other ones have been, but, um, the content's great. So hope you guys enjoy. Thanks so much for tuning into the website, alignpodcast.com. Thank you so much for starting the Align Method Online program and the seven-day free trial so you can dip your feet into the self-care practices and movement practices and nighttime routines and morning routines. Um, the Align Method Online program breaks down how to integrate more effective movement into every aspect of your life, what that means, why that matters, and then also gets into a little bit more dynamic type movement uh, practices or workouts, you could say. So you can try that thing seven days free, uh, no strings attached. It also comes along with the Align Band, Heavy Duty Resistance Band with the door anchor. And uh, I hope you guys love that thing. People have so far and love hearing your feedback. And that's it. Grab that program, start it seven days. And uh, yeah, let me know if you like it on the Instagrams if you want. Um, all right, here we go. Back to the shizzy with the good Dr. Andrew Hill. Pow. Align Podcast. What's your story with how you became so entrenched in this world of neurofeedback and just your yeah. mind and meditation? I, he- I heard the when you were on the Joe Rogan show, you had mentioned you do some, some drumming and some shamanistic type. Yeah, I have a history stuff. of that. Yeah, it's yeah. ecstatic techniques. Yeah, um, what's, uh, what's that all about? Uh, you know, for, for many years I've been involved with um, the brain, um, and when I was a kid, actually, my little brother got hit by a car and was in a coma for many weeks. and had this, you know, profound alteration of his consciousness from a very small injury, you know, a golf ball-sized piece of his brain that was impinged, and that was enough to throw off his consciousness for many weeks and actually, you know, cause him some impairments that he had to learn his way around. Um, later on. Uh, but he was young enough, he was in first grade or something, that his brain was able to shrug off all of the damage over time mm-hmm. in spite of it being you know, a pretty significant injury, you know, open head kind of injury. It wasn't a closed head injury. Um, so that was pretty fascinating to me to see a small little injury produce massive change in consciousness and then see him over the next few years completely regain the ability to walk and talk and you know control his behavior. Yeah. So the plasticity, the, the, the change ability of the brain was something that really struck me. 
Um, and then I ended up working in, maybe because of that, many different types of health and human service environments. So I worked with retarded adults in group homes. I worked with profoundly impaired you know, elders in geriatric facilities. I worked with kids in psychiatric hospitals, dual diagnosis drug and alcohol people in inpatient locked facilities who were you know, major mental illness uh, type people. And across all different you know, challenges, there are some consistencies. People still have strengths and weaknesses. And um, I saw interventions. I mean, I worked in group homes with retarded adults, and we spent a year, one year, teaching a guy to use a fork. That was our big accomplishment. And in psychiatric hospitals, I saw people, you know, sort of revolving door, come in for a few weeks, get a med that might or might not work, leave, come back a week or two later, yeah. you know, for years. Um, so my sort of per first person perspective in mental health was that we aren't doing a great job at it. We don't really understand how the brain works and how to medicate or manipulate the mind in any significant way. And that was just my sort of professional, you know, 20s and 30s. Um, at the same time in that uh, time in my life, I was heavily involved with a group of people in the Northeast who were, you know, shamanistic and wicked and lots of crazy type, you know, pagans. And within that group, I got involved with a group of people that were very much into the ecstatic technique. Now, an ecstatic technique, um, if you use uh, the definition of shamanism or Sadie Eliade, uh, basically it's something you do to alter your consciousness and get an unusual or an extraordinary reality. And from that place, you have different perspective. And then when you come back to ordinary reality, you come back with more information, more insight, perspective, etc. Um, and so there's a group um, of several thousand people that are very active still, that meet you know all over the all over the world, and we usually go to a mountaintop, light a giant bonfire with about a hundred of our closest friends, and push ourselves around a fire with you know lots of drumming for eight or ten hours without stopping, you know, dust till dawn kind of things. And yeah. doing this night after night, you know, you push yourself past your physical limits and sort of loosen the shape of your consciousness a little bit and end up having ecstatic experiences, altered consciousness. Yeah. Um, this is a, this particular group is not a group that actually uses drugs or alcohol. So these techniques, these ecstatic techniques are about the body, about pushing the physical uh, machine hard enough that you have sort of breakthrough experiences in consciousness. Yeah. Um, and so I got involved with that community for many years and explored my own sort of consciousness, if you will, through things like these ecstatic techniques, through drumming, through tattooing, a lot of you know, ritual tattooing. Um, I'm fairly heavily covered with tattoos. Um, and the process of actually sitting in pain is its own ecstatic technique, you know, and learning to experience it without attaching to it, without resisting it, letting it flow through you. So I learned a lot about how my own mind and brain work through these experiences. At the same time, professionally, I was you know, seeing these uh, you know, traditional, if you will, mental health approaches being a little imperfect. Um, and around that time, I ended up uh, getting pretty badly injured in the psych hospital I was working in. I was in charge of... Uh, Restraints. I was the head person who taught people how to restrain other people in the hospital. And that meant I also was first on scene when there was a crisis and, you know, jumped on people and safely tried to keep them from hurting myself or other people. But this was, uh, you know, 20 years ago and sort of mental health wasn't all that, you know, psych hospitals were getting defunded. There was low staffing and we just didn't have the resources for the acuity of clients we had. 
And I did too many things back to back in a short period of time and blew out two discs in my lower back and didn't walk for a while and you know, walked with a walker or a cane for many months. And so I couldn't do that hands-on, frontline psychiatric work I had been doing and I had to find something else to do. And so I went and worked in high tech. You know, I had some tech skills, so I went and did tech evangelism and you know, sort of took a complete departure from what I had been doing. I did marketing and biz dev and sales engineering and that kind of thing as the tech bubble was starting to collapse in the Northeast. And uh, uh, as that happened, um, we, we, our tech company sort of downsized and I decided, you know, I really miss working with people. You know, it wasn't always the most fulfilling thing seeing these you know, people have their continued challenges, but I wanted to get back into it. And so I had been aware of the neurofeedback field for a while and I found somebody local who um, needed an, in, an intern and I went down and met him. And before I knew it, I had a job. And over the next few years, I worked with an autistic spectrum population uh, and saw amazing things. Saw you know, ADHD get eliminated you know, nine times out of 10. Saw autistic kids uh, have symptoms reduced dramatically, make eye contact, start speaking sometimes. I saw seizure disorders just go away. I saw depression just go away. And, you know, I had this 20 plus year perspective in mental health where not a lot changes with interventions. And now here I was working in an environment where things were changing more often than not. And we're talking about in weeks or months, not years. And so this was shocking to me that we could actually eliminate ADHD in 20 or 30 sessions of training. Yeah. We could get autistic kids that were, you know, self-stimming and obsessed to settle their nervous systems and start making eye contact and sometimes actually producing language again. Um, and this was dramatically you know, uh, uh, noticeable to me as a different type of intervention compared to behavioral interventions that we would use prior with kids with developmental issues and certainly different than the med, the psychiatric approach uh, in inpatient psych. And so um, that really sort of shifted my perspective. I did that for a few years and then decided I needed to go back to grad school to figure out how this stuff worked, this neurofeedback stuff, because we didn't know. You know, at the time, I mean, we still don't know, honestly, how it works. We have some better ideas and we can control the process a bit better now. But 15, 20 years ago, there were sort of three schools of thought in the neurofeedback world. And they all had completely different ideas about how neurofeedback must work and different sets of approaches to controlling the brain based on those ideas. And the ideas were actually not reconcilable. They were completely incongruent ideas. And yet, all three churches or schools of neurofeedback had efficacy rates above 80%. So regardless of some idea about it that wasn't really reconcilable, everyone was having great results. I mean, way better results than any other form of psychiatric intervention. And so this sort of struck me as what I call a blind men and elephant situation. We all had a piece of the story. You know, one person's got the tail and thinks it's a snake. Right. One person has the ear and thinks it's a leaf. Yeah. Um, and we were all convinced we knew what the truth was. No one actually really knew what it was. And yet, we got great results. And so went back to grad school, got a PhD at UCLA studying neurofeedback. You know, I was an EEG scientist, a cognitive neuroscientist. And um, did that for a few years. PhDs take a little while. And then decided to, um, instead of going in the academic route, to really you know, double down on working with people. And we've opened the Peak Brain Center. We're opening you know, many of these are now in the country. And we, um, there's other things that have come into my you know, awareness over the time that are adjunctive almost with neurofeedback. Things like diet hacking, activity, mindfulness and meditation. And from my perspective, these are all, um, you know, I'm also a gerontologist. Uh, I teach courses in aging at UCLA. Cool. 
and there's a concept in gerontology called modifiable behaviors. Um, we don't think about gerontology as the study of end of life. We think about gerontology now as the life course. And so things you do early in life actually affect you late in life. In fact, things your grandparents did, you know, if your grandfather, grandmother was in World War II, you have different cortisol regulation because of that sort of epigenetic, you know, cascades or Lamarckian inheritance through many generations actually is a thing. Um, And so uh, over time, I've brought in other interventions and... uh, try to encourage people to take control of their brain health be it be it be it, be it dropping sugar out replacing with fat diet be it learning to actually get control over a busy mind through mindfulness and meditation or yoga or something a little more you know hardcore like neurofeedback where you can reach in and actually change your brain so my perspective has become one of don't be satisfied with whatever your brain's doing if you don't like it you know, shift happens. You have control over your brain way more than you maybe have been taught by your traditional, you know, Western sort of psychiatric or psychological context. Yeah. And you can look into the, you probably are familiar with it, but the Dutch hunger winter is another example of that Not <clears throat> in relation to, um, it was, I don't know the, the whole history story right now off the top of my head, but just look up Dutch hunger winter uh-huh, uh-huh. and then, um, people that were, uh, after after that were born to the people that were going through this experience mm. they ended up causing causing their um, their metabolism their body was a lot more stingy with holding on to fat interesting and so any type of calories that would go in after this dutch hunger winter experience the kids the children would just turn it you know super fat because now yep. we have resources yep but absolutely we're not used to that yeah and the, bot- and, and the regulations have been taught you better hold on to calories because they are scarce in this environment yeah and yeah. by the same token you know grandkids of people who were in World War II concentration camps. Grandkids who never met the grandparents have dramatically increased risk for things like PTSD yeah. because the the brain of their grandparents learned that the stressful environment is not safe, the world is not a safe place, and taught the brain some regulation strategies to keep you safe, and then those got passed down genetically. Yeah. And so uh, we're discovering now that we actually have a lot of genetic inheritance because of environment that we didn't really realize was uh, true even a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. My curiosity, I guess, with all the neurofeedback stuff and just everything, you know, all the ecstatic movement and all, all that is is starting to actually access our nervous system, starting to access mm-hmm. whoever's guiding the ship. Mm-hmm. You know, and so most of us are run off of momentum. So right. that could be our ancestors' momentum, that could be this life's yep. momentum, that could be our cultural, environmental momentum. You know, but getting uh, into the into the you know starting to be able to adjust the toggles of the compass. I think that's mm-hmm. the really challenging thing. I think it is, and and you know honestly, uh, it's a bit inflammatory to say, but the the more neuroscience and the more spirituality and the more everything I do, the less I actually believe in consciousness, hmm. and don't really believe there is an I, you know, there is a captain at that ship. Right. It's all a function of the individual pressures accumulating to be the control system. I, I don't believe there is a central controller. I think it's all about um, those reactions and pressures and learning over time, be it your grandparents learning, be it your individual you know, stressors and, and successes you've had. Um, from my perspective, and this is some of a Buddhist perspective, I guess, consciousness doesn't really exist as an overarching continuous thing. You have moments of consciousness, moments of awareness. 
but you know you don't contain one bit of matter, one molecule that you contained 20 years ago. Mm. And yet, are you the same person? This is that classic ship of Theseus example. You know, you hold up a model ship, and uh, if you replace one plank of the wooden ship with a tin plank, is it the same ship? Well, sure. Another plank, same ship? Maybe. At what point is identity different? Yeah. Consciousness is little moments of consciousness, but the overall self, the I, the capital I, I think is a lovely illusion. So we keep doing things like feeding and fucking. And we don't have, I mean, it's, it's an evolutionary, um, it's, it's our, our DNA, our genes driving, if you will, competition and success. It doesn't, uh, I, I really have lost any, any belief in the mind consciousness as a consistent, persistent phenomena. And for me, it's all becoming about the stitching together of moments of consciousness in an illusory way to make sure we keep keeping uh, care of the machine we're carrying around. Yeah, yeah. And the same same analogies in relation to like sports teams. You know, it's like, go Flyers! You know, it's like, Which you have no relation to the Flyers. Yeah. You know, like, I liked yeah. the Flyers when I was like 13. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> Still, go Flyers, you know. But it's a completely different organism now, you know. And then, but what in relation to getting into being able to start to to really guide that ship or change that organism, I think that we can see big standout changes, you know, so I think this ecstatic experiences that could be analog to like the Philadelphia Flyers go on strike. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden we're like, we see a change. We're like, okay, we need to readdress the organization of this organism. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. so I think having experiences like that, which we, we, are completely devoid of in our culture. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's 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 almost like poo pooed on. You know, you talking about having all night drumming, si- you know, yeah, yeah. pseudo psychedelic It's, it's, it's like, kind of weird oh. stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's it's all this woo woo, you know, like kind of spirituality. Yeah, you know, and 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 a lot of people who have more traditional, you know, spiritual experiences will think this stuff is really out there, but ecstatic experiences. Uh, are consistent across every chapter of our history as humans. Every culture has an ecstatic experience. Be it, you know, monks flagellating themselves until they go into a trance and have ecstatic right. experiences. Be it, you know, whirling dervishes, the Sufis, who are the you know, mystic sect of Islam, uh, whirling until they have these out-of-body almost experiences. Ecstasy or ecstatic, or, you know, altered consciousness is a feature of having consciousness. We have altered our minds since we've had minds to alter. As far as we can tell, birds will find the berry tree that has fermented berries and get drunk and they'll seek it out because they like how they feel. Um, Having a brain sort of means you want to mess with your brain. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. As, as I was reading the symphony in the brain mm, preparation yeah. for this whole experience, uh-huh. and one of the things it mentioned in there was the the twilight learner, which is I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's a gizmo that essentially would detect when your brain went into theta frequency, yep. Yep. which makes us more susceptible to like you know hypnosis and learning and all yep. that. Our yep. brain starts yep. to become more plastic. And so it would engage that information, whatever it is you want to learn upon that. And if you yeah. start to fall asleep, it would get to- it would get higher and wake you back up yep. and kind of keep you in that hypnotic state. Yep. But it's the yep. practice of getting into the hypnotic state. Right, exactly. And, it, and it's the flexibility. It, you know, most of these uh, biofeedback devices, they sort of are, are pitched as if they are doing something, you know, moving a dial, moving your theta up, moving your delta down. Right. It's not actually how they work. They're kind of applauding the brain for subtle fluctuations, so the brain reorganizes over time. Um, and a lot of the initial early biofeedback on things like alpha and theta we're kind of missing the mark. Um, you don't really, I mean, a lot of the 60s, alpha neurofeedback or alpha biofeedback was a big thing. 
And I think it kind of torpedoed the field a little bit as a whole because eyes open alpha training is actually kind of a very gentle, almost non-impactful kind of neurofeedback or EEG biofeedback. The really powerful biofeedback actually is on a frequency called SMR, which is a low uh, beta frequency, 12 to 15 uh, hertz. And SMR is this sort of core frequency in the brain that's used to regulate connectivity between different parts of the brain, the hypothalamic, sorry, the, the uh, cortical thalamic connections. So it's the gain, if you will. You turn the gain up on the mic yeah. and we have louder audio. Right. <coughs> There's gain in attention. And if you turn up the gain in attention, you're able to attend with less distraction. If you turn down the gain in the system, any little novelty pulls your mind around. And so we discovered this frequency in the late 60s. Um, this professor at UCLA named Barry Sturman was asked by NASA to figure out you know, how dangerous rocket fuel is. And so he built a, a, a test rig, a plexiglass cage, and his test animals were cats. And so he put cats in a plexiglass room, a little, little booth, with a beaker of um, methyl uh, hydroxyzine, uh, which is rocket fuel. And this stuff would evaporate and it's poisonous. So the cats would start to cry and pant and drool and have seizure coma death. I mean, the number of minutes exposed to rocket fuel was a really linear dose-dependent curve, except one group of the cats that he exposed refused to have seizures, just completely refused. And he did two and a half times the exposure to show symptoms. He couldn't figure out why this particular group of cats had these meta-stable brains until he had remem- he remembered that these cats had been given a proof of concept experiment. You know, can I raise this SMR brainwave in response to a milk dropper reward? Will this work? Oh yeah, it'll work. And months later, these cats were seizure resistant. Mm. And so his uh, lab assistant was also a medication uncontrolled epileptic, having lots of seizures. And she basically demanded he make her a machine. He built a rig for her, and over the next couple of years, she trained herself and went off all her meds and remained seizure-free for a year. So that was the first, like, stake in the ground. Okay, we're doing something to core regulation. Epilepsy is not a cognitive experience. I mean, you often have auras before you have a seizure. But the seizure is a high-amplitude, high-volume, high-frequency storm in the brain. It is not organized uh, frequencies. You can kind of think... um, well, actually, it's not entirely true. Seizures are somewhat over-organized. They're a, a spike that's too coherent. Um, you may have seen an EKG before. It's a very characteristic wave. Yeah. Uh, every time your heart beats, it's the same characteristic wave. And a, a cardiologist can glance at the shape of the wave, the latency between parts of it, the amplitude of the wave, the height, and sort of tell you, oh, I see you may have some issue here because part of the wave is too wide or too short but it should be the same wave every time. Uh, when you have a heart attack, you have this chaotic rapid firing. So if you measure the heartbeat during a heart attack, it looks like EEG, it looks like brain waves. If you measure the brain during a seizure, you get spike discharges, coherent discharges that look like a heartbeat. And so essentially heart neurons and brain neurons have same neurons, but completely different regulatory strategies. The heart has a stability where things go coherent and the brain has a chaos where things go decoherent as the most optimal state. Mm-hmm. And when those things get sort of into their opposite state, that's we have significant trouble. So we're starting to understand more and more about the brain, but 
uh, we still just barely understand how to reach in and try to manipulate some of these things. So it's still a more of a, it's still at least as much of an art as a science, unfortunately. Yeah, I saw there was some study with uh, where drumming, like travel drumming or djembe drumming, mm-hmm. or, you know, what have you, mm-hmm. um, increased natural killer cells, like cancer fighting T-cells, cells. Uh-huh, and, yeah, uh-huh, and like yeah. pretty much every biological marker that was great went up you know, yeah, <laughs> just yeah. for the product of being in that 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 yeah. kind of meditative hypnotic drumming state yeah is that yeah. smr uh probably not actually okay. um you can't make smr when you're moving probably not a lot of smr okay smr is a quiescent body if you've ever seen a cat lying on a windowsill watching birds out the window you've seen smr that liquid body and super alert eyes yeah um smr i that think was that. That was the experience you were saying, like, how are you feeling? That was like, I'm like melting into the screen. When you were doing neurofeedback. Yeah. yeah. Your body was kind of like not activated, but your mind was alert. Not yeah. busy, right? But yeah. just kind of poised, kind of like waiting. That state is profoundly good, if you will, if you're somebody who's distractible. Also, if your brain tends to seize or have these you know, bursts of activity, training up that frequency means that you become less dysregulated, less easily. So seizures go down, ADHD goes away. You can also use SMR for sleep regulation and a few other things. So um, I think cats and other predator animals use SMR to relax their body profoundly before leaping into action, right? You can move more quickly from relaxation than from tension. And so predators have this regulation strategy of relaxing their body profoundly while they're watching prey so that they can leap into action if necessary and be much quicker and therefore, you know, eat. So um, in these predator animals, this is why Sturman, I think, used SMR because it was an obvious frequency. But humans, it's not really obvious. We mostly use SMR in an obvious way. You can see it in the brain. When we're deeply asleep, there's these bursts of, of SMR that neurologists call sleep spindles or sigma. Those are equivalent terms. A sleep spindle is SMR. And when you're sleeping, a little sleep spindle causes a secondary ripple of activity in the, in the hippocampus, which is memory uh, structures, and it causes consolidation, moving memory from short-term into long-term storage. So SMR is involved with learning. Also, um, if you, you may know uh, Temple Grandin, who, who's this autistic scientist, talked about the experience of being squeezed, and she built one of these cow squeezers yeah, because it helps yeah. her feel really calm when she's physically squeezed. Yeah. And this is true of all developmental people, or many developmental people. If you deep pressure activates some profound relaxation, yeah. that's SMR. Constraining the body mm. produces this calmness. It's got to be an SMR-like state. So there's something magical about this frequency, 12 to 15 hertz in adult humans, that if we enhance it, if you exercise it, the entire brain seems to regulate better. Stress, sleep, attention, everything. Um, and, and include things like seizures and learning. So we don't know really what it is. We're still working on the phenomena versus really understanding what's actually happening. But we, we understand it enough and the technology and tools are good enough that we can manipulate it. Yeah. And the name of the game in neurofeedback is uh, do a brain map, see what might be out of range, associate that with what's true for you, and then start exercising frequencies to try to shift your brain activity to meet goals. Goals of stress response control, attention, sleep, anxiety, seizure, etc. SMR, you know, even 50, 60 years later, is still the sort of core frequency that most of the field 
is built around. It, it fixes and works on the most things. Cool. Yeah, so. I use that with uh, manual therapy when I'm so I'm working when I'm working with clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I will use sometimes is a heavy blanket. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, a similar thing that I'll do sometimes is, is do more like passive therapy. So putting people into kind of like a fetal type position, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and allowing mm-hmm. them to feel as guarded as they possibly can. Yep. Yep. You know, yep. And in doing that, all of a sudden their nervous system can say like, wow, this guy's like, he's really got me. He's like putting me deeper into this pattern to the point that like, oh, I can kind of let go of this shit. You know, versus if we put someone in a more outstretched place or open up their arms or take the blanket off or take the pressure off, they're more like, okay, I'm out in the city, I'm on guard, I'm back to whatever survival was for me before. Interesting. interesting. But as we get deeper into that, it allows our nervous system the space to say like, okay, I think I'm safe enough to change. That's great. It's wonderful. Yeah. You know, and I wonder, so with movement though, one of the things you'd mentioned is is the cats being in that SMR state, staring Mm -hmm. out the window. Yep. I've heard, seen, uh, studies, whatever, in relation to neurofeedback affecting fine motor skills. Yeah. You know, and so I wonder how much can we start tinkering with the, you know, the motor cortex or, or you know, sensory motor system yeah. in relation to this stuff? How can we affect the, the muscles? Yeah, um, you know, I don't do a lot of movement work. However, there is some good research. Um, neurofeedback is actually really hard to do research on for a bunch of reasons. Mm-hmm. One is in a clinical context or even a peak performance context, the process is heavily individualized. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to do group level studies when you individualize the work for every person. Also, historically, it's been really hard to blind neurofeedback research. You can't double-blind work when you pull a wire off. You know it's not real data. Um, I actually helped the um, one of the leading software developers in the field develop a double-blind module for this software. And now there's many multi-center studies going on where we have blinded neurofeedback happening, which is pretty cool. Mm. But um, we can do a lot over time. The... Um, Movement stuff, there's at least one study that shows that surgeons who have one single or maybe four, it's a very short number of sessions, very small number, in a couple of sessions, they can develop better fine motor control for microsurgical tool manipulation in like a single session or two. Um, Something happens. And when I was doing my my grad work at UCLA, um, I measured something called an ERP, an event-related potential. Essentially, whenever anything happens in the brain, there's an event that happens. The brain's responding to that that external or internal stimulus. And if you do some interesting averaging of data, you can extract the event from the background ongoing EEG. And I looked at the event of the neurofeedback reward beep and found that the brain is yoking, is, is, is picking up the information in the neurofeedback signal within moments. Like within the first few minutes of sitting down your first time, the brain is sort of binding to the changing stimulus and trying to figure out what internally is controlling it. Yeah. So within moments, the brain is sort of yoking to the outside world in a way that you can then drag the brain around. Yeah. Yeah, I saw some other things where it was uh, neurofeedback was able to, I think bruxism is what it's called. Yeah, when, yeah when teeth grinding. Teeth grinding, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, and so it's, and you see the brain processes emotional information the same same places that it processes movement information. So mm-hmm. when you feel scared, you can't just feel scared in your brain. Right. You know, you have to. Right. You, know, you feel that contraction through your whole system. You do, and and you know the the theories of emotion are kind of funny. Uh, 
the first one of the first guys who talked about emotion is uh, James and uh, one of the first psychologists. And James was here in Southern California, and he was trying to figure out what an emotion was. Right. And so he's like, well, who, who does emotion? Actors. And so he went to Hollywood and grabbed a bunch of actors and said, hey, you guys are experts at emotion. Right. How does it work? And they all said, well, we portray it in our bodies, and then we notice what our bodies are doing, and then we feel it. Yeah. Um, essentially, you're walking down Topanga Canyon, you step on a snake, your body notices a snake, your stomach clenches, then your mind notices it and then you have a reaction. That's actually been somewhat disproven. It actually, it's sort of bi-directional. You both get information from the body and the top-down control in the, the context interpretation of the mind. Yeah. Both are actually you know, true. And to a large extent, um, in terms of like your gut, your heart, and your brain being connected, that's a feature of the vagus nerve. This nerve, uh, vagus means wanderer, I think, in Latin. Yeah. And it's this bi-directional tract that goes from the heart to the gut, to, to, from the brain to the heart to the gut, and it notices activity changes across all three systems and ties them together. So if you're nervous and your gut clenches, your brain notices it. If you run across campus you know, and you run into a classroom, you find the test more stressful because you've activated the body and you transfer that excitation up to the mind. By the same token, if you're really stressed out and you see somebody attractive, you think they're more attractive than you would otherwise because you're transferring that excitation to all aspects of your perception. So we're pretty bad at having discrete, dry, good judgment against this storm of activation that our bodies and minds are sort of exchanging the, you know, all the time. Yeah, and then with the vagus nerve, 70-odd percent of the nervous pathways are moving from the gut to the brain. And so the gut-brain access, it's like exactly what you're saying. It's, it's upstream, downstream. It's, yeah, it's yeah. just the stream. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> you know, it, exactly. It can flow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, so I wonder with you, like, what's your actual experience with the the ecstatic drumming, ecstatic? Mm -hmm. What what is it? How do you call it exactly? Ecstatic um, ceremonies. Yeah, I mean, you know, sacred fire circle kind sure. of stuff. What you do you know? what do you? How do you see that affecting people? How how have you seen that affect yourself? I mean, uh, as a drummer, the you're. The experience is very different than as a dancer. I probably did about 12 years in that, in that community, never touching a drum, just you know throwing myself at high speed around a fire all night long. <laughs> and that is um, the repetitive nature is boring. It, it distracts the conscious mind. Also, it's physically hard. So you know you're sweating, you're 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 moving. It's hot. You know, um, and eventually you sort of allow your mind to go someplace else. Um, as a drummer, the experience is actually much different because you in West African drumming, which is what this community has grown up around, the drummer's responsibility is to never go into trance, to always be present. Mm. In Native American shamanism, the drumming, the sort of repetitive drumming, the drummers go into trance. And, and in like Eastern European, the same thing, the shamanic drumming. West African drumming is not shamanic per se, but it provides polyrhythm sort of container and then the dancer has the shamanic or the ecstatic experience, and they're allowed to be driven by the, the music. Um, but the drummer's responsibility is to play these very complex rhythms and to stay in communication with other drummers, with dancers. And so it's a very different kind of experience, but it's also you know, a spiritual experience, an intentional experience. And if you're doing this from you know, dusk till dawn all night long in a very high volume, busy environment, you aren't talking to each other. 
And so there's people that you work with for years that you never had a conversation with, you know, verbally, but you're sitting here drumming and playing with them across hours of, you know, very, I mean, drumming is very hard, this kind of drumming or physically uh, uh, active. And you develop the ability to communicate with people. You don't know their names. You've never talked to them, but year after year after year, you see them in this kind of environment. You know how they, you know, I can, I can be at one of these events and be a mile away from the fire and be like, oh, that person's playing. Oh, I want to go over there and play with them because I know now what this person sounds like. And so that's kind of one nice piece of it. We also see people who will, you know, do the fire, you know, we call it, you know, doing O's, you know, circling the fire and we'll do that for an hour or two and suddenly have ecstatic sort of breakthroughs, lying on the ground, flopping, popping and come out of that, not quite sure where they are, but having a profound stress release and maybe having some visions or other ecstatic experiences while they're in that state. And so this community that I'm in, we sort of um, look for that when that's happening, when it starts to happen, we, you know, the other people on the track kind of come around the person and keep them safe while they're there, maybe guide them around if they're not totally conscious of their space so they can keep the process going. So we have a whole sort of, you know, spiritual community built up around these techniques. Um, I would not do them justice to describe them in any detail, but um, they're kind of like all other ecstatic techniques. And there's, and ecstatic techniques, again, are, you know, old. We've been doing ecstatic techniques since before we had minds to do them. Mm. I mean, animals will do them sometimes. So, uh, the process ultimately in this kind of context for me is about creating a safe container to essentially lose yourself, lose your mind, lose yeah. your consciousness. Yeah. Um, and we have, you know, as a, as a Western culture, we often have very few um, uh, examples of rites of passage, yeah. of changing our minds in a significant way. And so the per, you know, when people go to these environments for the first time and are allowed to put their mind down or allowed to go through, a, I mean, the ordeal is also part of it. You know, three, four, five nights in a row of pushing yourself and seeing the sun come up after 10, 12 hours of dancing. Yeah. When you keep doing that, it feels like a profound accomplishment and the ordeal, moving yourself through the ordeal, uh, sort of has this almost like alchemical, not you know, lead into gold as metal, but in taking the internal lead of your, of your stuff, you know, things you're attached to, the things you worry about, and refining that, burning that off, and gradually turning that into personal gold. Yeah. And there's some evidence that the old alchemists were not talking about metal. They're talking about your mind. And changing that, you know, refining the uh, the um, the mental states, you know, solvate coagula, dissolve the crap, and bring out the gem or the or the or the, the the pure piece of yourself from within the conflict and the and the junk. And that essentially is what ecstatic techniques are: is you know a a, a transformative experience that is an ordeal. Yeah. So. Yeah, I can't help it. Just smile as you're a little like yes. It's <laughs> you know? good stuff. Yeah, yeah. I notice with um, again just with uh, with body work from manual therapy with people. I notice as soon as people start talking, and sometimes we will talk because I want to talk to you and yeah. it's fun, you know. And sometimes I'll use words as a means of, of visualization or maybe even validating that I know what the heck I'm doing. Yep. So sometimes depending on who I'm working with, the doctor will use big anatomical terms for a little bit. Sure, sure. But the goal is always to get them into a deeper state where words are out the window right. and you're just going deeper inside of yourself. That's where the work's at. Yep. And you yep. can feel it. The second someone starts going into some type of memory or something of scientific jargon of mm-hmm. something that they've remembered, yep. body goes, 
yeah. and locks up. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's like that. It's that experience. I think that if we can practice being more fluid with being able to switch into that kind of introspection yeah. work, yeah, and then put the helmet back on, get back out there, and pay the bills, but then take the helmet off. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I mentioned tattooing earlier. A friend of mine has had a lot of tattoo work done, and um, she, the first few times she had it done, the whole time she was getting tattooed, she was screaming and wailing at the top of her lungs in response to the pain. Oh. Now, she had a big back piece done. If you know how many tattoos in your back, that is a very painful place to be tattooed, probably the most painful place. And these, I mean, massive, big, you know, back piece working on. And, and every month or two, I'd see her, and she'd be having some work done on it. And over a couple of years, her reaction to it changed. Initially, it was, ah, the whole time. Right. And about six months later, it was little moments of pain. And after a couple of years, it was learning to breathe through it, release it as soon as she felt it, soften against it, and not resisting against pain actually allows it to go away, physical pain. Yeah. You know, mindfulness with the actual experience. And so almost involuntarily, you have to learn those kind of things if you're doing shamanic work with pain, because if you resist it, you make the process much worse. If you soften and observe, become mindful with it, it teaches you. Yeah. And so I think the whole, you know, regardless if we're talking about a formal ecstatic technique or prayer or mindfulness or meditation or tattooing, whatever it is, if your consciousness is altered or impinged upon in some significant way that you then can't verbalize your way out of, you have to have a different experience with your reality and it teaches you things about how your mind works and about how your brain works that I think then change how you feel in general. You know, this, this friend of mine probably wasn't as resistant against things in her life that she didn't like because she learned that if you just kind of soften against things that are aversive, they go away. Yeah. And so she developed a different relationship with aversive stimuli. Yeah. Another practice that people can tinker with is cold showers, you know, as yeah. far as like toning your vagal, you know, Absolutely. vagal tone and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. Having that, you know, I, I, I kind of abandoned... Um, using warm water except for like special occasions like okay. I'm, I'm all cold shower guy <laughs> okay alright better man than me if that's alright and, and, uh, but it's that practice every single day you know like the water's coming down and you're like okay mm-hmm. and you just mm-hmm. walk into it and you can shriek or you can just find that in yourself where it's like this is just a temperature yeah yeah. you know and it's like if you have that daily practice I, I swear to god it's not that big of a deal once you kind of get through that right. And, and by the same thing. token, you know, a friend of mine realized how tattooed I am. They're like, oh my God, how did you put up with that? Yeah. It's like, well, you can kind of learn, you know, you kind of learn to have an experience with the experience yeah. and, and put it in its own context and take it for what it is and then move beyond it. And yeah. that's the same thing. Any extreme stimuli, you know, from a safety perspective and a survival perspective, we have this habit of reacting profoundly to strong stimuli, appetitive or aversive. And we don't really need to. We can develop this sort of even-keeled mind, even-keeled perspective where the strong things we observe, we may react to, but they don't throw us off. You know, we become sort of weeble wobbles. Yeah. Uh, and, and we kind of, this writing motion, we come back to a, a, a center in spite of what's happening. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to talk about uh, nootropics before, yeah. before, I, before we, sure. we finish up. Um, that's a, a fairly new thing for me in the last like six months or so. All of a sudden, people are talking about nootropics and such, and so I'm like, all right, mm-hmm. I got to get involved. You know, yeah, like, what's yeah. where do I start? What's like, what's where do people start in general? I think it's 
Sure. So nootropics, um, let me say one thing. I, I have a really hard time with the industry of nootropics these days mm. because the word is gotten uh, used as a marketing term more than the actual initial definition. The, the original definition included features like must be neuroprotective, must enhance cognition, meaning stress response, attention, memory, sleep, something, and must do so without appreciable side effects. That last term is critical, especially if you're a biohacker working on peak performance. You shouldn't tolerate any risk of side effects to trying to get supra-normal. If you're trying to fix a deficit, okay, maybe a drug you need or a compound you want to take might have some side effects. If there's a problem you're trying to medicate, you may have to tolerate side effects to get the benefit you're looking for. But if you're pretty good overall, the idea that you would risk significant side effects for small amounts of enhancement above your baseline is absurd to me. And there are a lot of companies out there using the word nootropic for things that are not nootropics. Mm. Um, like even caffeine is not a nootropic. It's a cognitive enhancer, it helps your attention, but caffeine has cardiovascular risk and it's diuretic, suppresses appetite, profoundly addictive, not a nootropic. Mm. By the same token, things like modafinil, absolutely, utterly not a nootropic. Now, first of all, modafinil is minimally supporting cognition, has almost no real benefits. Uh, it's a wakeful promoting agent. Yeah. But people who are profoundly sleep deprived think it's the best thing since sliced bread. And the side effect risk is fairly low for modafinil. Unless you're somebody like me who has a dramatic side effect. I, I was in the hospital for three weeks after having modafinil. Nice. Head to toe, histamine reaction, pressure hives, lungs closing up, near death. Um, from taking it as prescribed, 100 milligrams a day, every morning. Two weeks in, my system blew up and I just about died. Um, soon after that, I started looking deeply into nootropics. Trying to figure out what the heck these things were, what were safe, what weren't safe. Um, I think the best place for people to start is actually with a nootropic called L-theanine. Yeah, theanine is the naturally occurring amino acid found in tea that is somewhat calming and also works beautifully to buffer caffeine. So I think the best sort of uh, combination of cognitive enhancers and nootropics for beginners is actually just add some L-theanine, a capsule, something to your coffee. Just like swallow it and drink your coffee or have tea. Um, it's a beautiful, you know, tea has almost as much caffeine as coffee, and yet many people feel jittery and distractible on coffee and feel very smooth on tea. Mm. The difference is L-theanine. So my first suggestion is get some L-theanine. It's cheap. It's fairly innocuous. Pop an L-theanine, drink your coffee, and then see what it does to the caffeine stimulation. See if it gives you that smooth push. Mm. If you then want to go to the next level for nootropics, the sort of poster child for nootropics um, is paracetam. And paracetam is the first of a class called the racetams. Um, racetams con contain a pyrrolidine ring. Basically, racetams were synthesized from the neurotransmitter GABA. GABA is universally calming. Most neurotransmitters are either excitatory or inhibitory, depending where they are. GABA is always inhibitory. Um, so GABA feels very calming and warm and relaxing. L-theanine is GABAergic. Alcohol is GABAergic. You know, two, three drinks in, that warm glow, kind of softens you feel, that's GABA. That's a release of alpha waves and GABA in the brain mm. by, by the alcohol, essentially. Um, but it's a beautiful thing to combine with caffeine because you get this sort of sweet spot of both arousal and relaxation. From there, you know, paracetam, uh, um, again, was synthesized from GABA. It's, you know, all the racetams are synthetic, but there's several of them now with names like oxyracetam, aniracetam, piracetam, pramiracetam. You know, there's five or six other ones. Uh, 
some of them are brand new and people are calling things racetams that aren't like new pept is not a racetam and there's other things uh that are bandwagoning they're calling themselves racetams just because people think racetams are well accepted but really the only true racetams that have been around for 50 60 years paracetam oxyracetam antiracetam that's it and these have been used in europe in japan all over the world for like 50 years they have incredibly low side effect risk, incredibly high tolerance. You can take them in massive amounts and not have any problems with them. So the racetam class is the first, you know, sort of serious nootropic you might want to get into. And with a racetam, you often, because it's maybe affecting choline, you often need a choline source to buffer it so you don't exhaust your choline supply. Um, and there's only a couple of forms of choline that actually cross the blood-brain barrier and actually get into your brain. So it's not worth taking things like choline bitartrate or citrate because you're getting a choline hit to your body and very, very minimal, less than 1% goes into your brain. So forms of choline like uh, citicholine, which is also called CDP choline, and alpha-GPC. Those are forms of choline that actually do get into the brain and seem to change how the brain uh, how the brain's choline metabolism works, meaning the production of acetylcholine, which is a neurotransmitter involved with memory and attention, and also involved, uh, there's some changes in cell membrane. The, the membrane's made out, made out of a phospholipid bilayer that uses choline in the actual membrane. And so if you take these really high-end choline supplements, you may be improving the cell membranes as well. Cool. But we don't really understand fully what nootropics do, but the the good ones are actually relatively innocuous, very subtle, and are sort of okay to take on a long-term basis. They have anti-aging effects, anti-stress effects, anti-burnout, they can rebuild brain tissue. So those are the things that I would call nootropics. And if you're taking anything that has a side effect or is strongly felt, it's not a nootropic. Mm. You know, nothing that is strongly felt is sustainable. The brain adapts. You know, so no stimulant is ever going to be a nootropic. Yeah. I wonder, so uh, would a when reducing down those component parts, and we'll wrap up here right right now. She got to be out of here out of here in the next pretty soon. Ten minutes. Uh, cool, sweet. Yeah, we'll start start winding down. But um, in, upon reducing down these, you know, like micronutrients, like now we're doing vitamins, now we're doing mineral. Now, oftentimes that kind of confuses the body. I wonder, could we be doing the same thing as far as like could we replace that with like eating some hard boiled eggs and a glass of tea? I don't think so is the short answer okay. because the you know the these these drug forms or compound forms are often formulated to um, have much higher concentrations in the brain than you would get via typical metabolism. Yeah, your choline does go up in the brain a little bit when you eat eggs, but nothing like what happens when you take citicoline. Mm. Um, and also, you know, some of these things uh, uh, we do know that some things work much better in food forms versus supplement forms. The biggest example we know about are antioxidants. Sure. You should not be taking supplemental forms of antioxidants, only getting them from food. There's a, a hormesis effect. Hor a hormetic effect is the stress that causes the system to rally and overcome the stress. We used to think hormesis was like a woo-woo, you know, new age kind of idea. This is how you know homeopathy may work. But now we know hormesis is actually a core feature of repair in the body. Mitochondria, uh, which are energy powerhouses in the cell, when mitochondria get degraded or they um, get sort of broken, they pump out free radicals, you know, reactive oxygen species, which rip through DNA, do cell damage. It's really a big problem in terms of aging and cell death. Um, 
so the cell nucleus monitors the production of free radicals by the mitochondria. When that goes up, they say to the mitochondria, hey, kill yourself. You're really, you know, go home, mitochondria, you're drunk. Yeah. Um, and the mitochondria self-destructs, is replaced with another that has a better production of energy without free radicals. Unfortunately, if you take large amounts of oral antioxidants, you remove the pressure of that free radical signal and the cell never gives the mitochondria the signal to self-destruct and you actually have a higher load of free radicals in your system than you would otherwise and lifespan is shortened. Mm. So there's really no reason, there's like there's reasons not to take oral antioxidants ever. That being said, you should be doing food-based antioxidants, colorful vegetables, things that are red and green and blue, leafy green, you know, leafy greens, bright blue, bright red fruits have a lot of uh, uh, astaxanthins and other phyto phytochemicals that are really good for you that are antioxidants. Coffee. Westerners get more antioxidants from coffee than all other sources in the diet combined mm. because of this sort of, you know, the, the antioxidants in the coffee bean that is roasted. Yeah. So food sources are good. Um, supplemental sources of antioxidants are bad. When you come to things like nootropics, though, um, most of these classes of things like the cholines and the uh, racetams, they don't actually bind to receptors. They don't work in the way that a neurotransmitter does. We still aren't totally sure what they do, but it, they don't appear to be sort of competing for other natural mechanisms. This is why you don't downregulate. So, you know, paracetam doesn't stop working the longer you take it. It actually works better the longer you take it. Mm. So there's no like cellular adaptation <clears throat> to the receptor pushing that it downregulates. It doesn't you don't get used to racetams. You know, you get more and more uh, able to use them the longer you take them. Mm. And so there's something we don't again completely understand, but it's something very low level that it's doing in general. It's not like you're feeding the brain with nutrition. Racetams are not nutritive, but they're altering probably among other things um, the slipperiness, the flexibility of the cell membrane. Um, one of the ways that cells regulate their activities by rafting, by taking a chunk of the membrane and making it firm or making it fluid. Mm. And then membrane proteins flow throughout the membrane and move continuously. And cell membrane is not a static structure. It's like a little river of fats that are flowing past each other the whole time. And then it wants to affect a, a receptor and it rafts up around the receptor. It opens it or closes it. And racetams seem to make cell membranes much more flexible and slippery, which is probably one of the core ways they're actually affecting the cell at a very low level metabolic way. There's nothing to do with like the nutrients or the receptors you might tag. Um, again, we don't fully understand it yet, but it appears to be some very low-level sort of systemic enhancement versus a specific receptor you're going in and tweaking. Cool. So, thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate it. Definitely. I um, yeah. How do people? You say so you have a podcast coming up. You have a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, we're releasing a, a video-based podcast in the near future called Head First with Dr. Hill. Um, also, folks are always welcome to check me out on Twitter at Andrew Hill PhD. And we have the peakbraininstitute.com website, which is our brain training centers. We have one now in Los Angeles. We have one in St. Louis. We have one in downtown LA. Uh, we're opening up centers in Portland, San Diego, Orange cool. County, all over the world. Okay. So um, if folks are interested in getting some neurofeedback, you know, I'm not the only person out there. There's about 10,000 of us in the field. Um, just look around. You'll probably find somebody, but make sure they do brain mapping. Call something called QEEG. That's my threshold for what a good neurofeedbacker is, is are they actually being evidence-based, looking at your brain 
and then tailoring the process to what you need right. versus using some recipe book or some magic software they think does all the work for them. There's some you know, woo out there in the field, unfortunately, that kind of weakens our impact. Um, but you know, if you're looking for, for me personally, um, look me up on Twitter, look at our website, and uh, let me know your brain challenges, your brain stories. You know, we all have very interesting, curious, unique brains. We're all special snowflakes. And uh, I'm always interested to hear what people are, are doing with their brains, what experiences they have, what they found is transformative, what they found is effective for actually making change. So I'd love to hear what people's stories are. Cool, man. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I want to present y'all with a fun opportunity of starting a program that I created called the Align Method Online Program that focuses on unwinding the unsightly patterns of staring into technology, essentially. So forward head posture, rolled forward shoulders, hyperkyphotic spine, disengaged glutes, knees collapsing in. If there's collapse in any level in the body, it will trickle up and down through the rest of the system. And that program focuses on unwinding those things, giving you self-care practices, movement practices, and lifestyle adjustments, very subtle ones, that will give you all more flexibility, more strength, more confidence, more energy, all the good things. Um, and you can start the first week absolutely free and just go to alignpodcast.com slash align method, A-L-I-G-N method. Along with that guy, you will receive the Align Band, which is a heavy-duty resistance band with a door anchor, and that also comes with its own online program that is free with that thing. Go to alignband.com and start that program for free. Um, I think that's it. I so greatly appreciate you guys listening to this conversation. So greatly appreciate reviews on iTunes, sharing uh, on the Instagrams or the Facebooks or wherever you do your shares. Uh, this program goes on lives on because of y'all so um it doesn't go unnoticed thank you for listening thank you for views thanks for joining your life enjoy